Welcome to our panel discussion about Diplomats and Admirals, a new book released by Dale Jenkins that has startling new facts regarding the Pearl Harbor attack, the carrier battles in the Pacific, and culminates with the Battle of Midway. Dale Jenkins is a former U.S. Navy officer who served on a destroyer in the Pacific and for a time was homeported in Yokosuka, Japan. He spent time in the Philippines, Taiwan, South Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore, and was awarded the Navy Marine Corps Expeditionary Medal. He has a degree in history and business from Harvard and Columbia, and his business career was primarily in international banking. He was also staff director at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. Dale currently serves on the Samuel Elliott Morrison Committee of the Naval Order of the United States in New York and as regional director of the Naval War College Foundation. As a result of his active duty experience, lifelong interest in the Navy, and international affairs, Dale provides insight into the diplomacy and strategies of the Pacific region. Uh, today we're joined by uh, myself. My name is David Camfield. I am the uh, Vice President Chief Information Officer for Pacific Battleship Center. And uh, I also am a Navy veteran, served on board this ship, and uh, have a passion for history like this. So I'm very excited to be here today. And I will let the rest of our panel introduce themselves. Dale Jenkins. I'm Jim Koresh. Uh, I worked 35 years in aerospace and defense. I uh, worked with the Navy on a number of different efforts over the years. I've been privileged to be a part of Pacific Battleship Center for over 10 years. I've worked in tours uh, and the curatorial department and uh, helping to tell the story of Battleship Iowa. Uh, my name is Daniel Canfield. Uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, I am an uh, amateur historian and a volunteer here aboard Battleship Iowa. He also has the unfortunate distinction of being my youngest son. So. <laughs> um, Dale, it's a privilege to have you on board here today. Really uh, enjoyed getting into this book. Uh, and then sharing it with some other people. I'd like to jump right into the questions here because um, you address some really interesting topics. The first one here is, do you think that the war between the United States and Japan was inevitable? The war was not inevitable. Uh, Japan had expanded down through Indochina, first in 1940 uh, to Northern Indochina, and then in 1941 in July, they went to the southern part of Indochina. This threatened Singapore. And Roosevelt decided, this is enough, we've got to do something. He put in a qualified uh, asset freeze, which meant that he had to approve transactions to purchase oil. Uh, he went to Newfoundland to meet with Churchill about the same time, July 1941 and August. Uh, Assistant Secretary of State Dean Acheson put on a total freeze. This meant that there was no oil being shipped to Japan, and Japan imported almost all of their oil and about 90% of that from the United States. So this created a crisis. And <clears throat> then the negotiations began as to how to alleviate this. And there had been a study by the Total War Institute in Japan in the end of August that said, we cannot possibly win a war against the United States. The only solution is diplomacy. So this put Japan into a quandary. 
they were getting strangled by the lack of oil. They lose a war to the United States. What do they do? Uh, Prime Minister Kanoe of Japan desperately tried to have a one-on meeting with Roosevelt. Uh, Roosevelt at one point had agreed uh, between September 21 and 24, they'd get together uh, in Juneau, Alaska. Uh, Roosevelt's advisors, Cordell Hull, Stimson, uh, the others thought this was a terrible idea. Uh, Cordell Hull was advised by uh, someone named Stanley Hornbeck, who in turn was advised by Alger Hiss. We're still wondering what effect Alger Hiss had on all of this. But in any event, the summit never occurred, and the, two, the Japan was preparing for war because they were not going to be strangled. Finally, in November, there was an agreement reached in draft form where the uh, Japanese would withdraw from southern part of Indochina in exchange for a resumption of oil. This was a draft agreement they submitted on the 20th of November. We had a draft agreement that essentially said much the same thing, and Cordell Hall circulated this around to the Allies, the British, the Dutch, and the Chinese. Chiang Kai-shek came back with an adamant rejection of this and said, if there's any relaxation of these uh, sit situation with Japan, whether put the uh, any relaxation of the asset freeze, it will be a, con a total disaster for China. They will uh, collapse. The army will collapse, and in a thinly veiled uh, statement, you will pay the price. You will not be, uh, the lose will come, to, the loss will come to you also. With that, Cordell gave a much more difficult, strident uh, paper to the Japanese, which required for them to withdraw from all of Indochina, from all of China, and possibly all, even Manchuria, which they'd occupied for a long time. This was not satisfactory to Japan, and Pearl Harbor occurred two weeks later. Wow. So, um, so what, what was the final crisis between Japan and the U.S. that, that precipitated the war, that, that really drove that? Was that the, um, just the, the lack of, of being able to come to an agreement, or, or the stranglehold of oil, or the need to go elsewhere for their oil? Or well, there was nowhere else they could go for oil. They had an agreement with the Dutch East Indies to supply them with oil, but we prevailed upon the Dutch, uh, who really were opera operating out of London at that point, to agree to our uh, asset freeze. So that cut off the oil from the Dutch East Indies. Um, there, there was a something else that was going on which was also misunderstood. The, our military was not prepared for war. They were looking at Hitler as the major threat. Japan had a limited 
uh, economy. There was no threat that they could ever invade the west coast of the United States. But Hitler was a mortal threat. And our military wanted to delay any involvement in war until we had a chance to build up. But their concern was Hitler. And they said to uh, Hull and to Roosevelt, whatever you do, don't get involved with Japan because that'll put us into a two-front war and we're not prepared for a two-front war. So there was delay on the part of the military, but that delay was a qualified delay. Delay to Hull and uh, his advisors was just put the Japanese off and we'll just play them along for time. And of course, delay to the Japanese meant we're getting weaker every day that this asset freeze is in place and they're getting stronger because they're rebuilding our military. So they said, there's got to be a deadline. We either have an agreement or we're going to fight. And uh, in the end, even though there was a chance for an agreement, it fell through and we had Pearl Harbor. So you mentioned uh, uh, Chiang Kai-shek uh, being kind of the, the voice of dissent on the initial draft. Um, was that the part that he played, the primary part that he played in the negotiations about Pearl Harbor or prior to Pearl Harbor? Or what part did Chiang Kai-shek actually play? Well, Chiang Kai-shek delivered the note uh, to Roosevelt and also copied Churchill in London. And they had their... Uh, their lobbying groups around Washington, spreading the word that uh, we're appeasing the Japanese. And appeasement, of course, had a nasty connotation because the, uh, of the appeasement that had occurred with uh, Hitler in 1938. Uh, so that there was a tremendous pressure to not revoke this uh, asset freeze with Japan, and it really all came from Chiang Kai-shek. So, um, Pearl Harbor happens, and uh, did the carrier fleet make a comprehensive attack on Pearl Harbor? It's a subject of of great debate that goes on and on. Uh, What in fact occurred was that the Japanese launched two waves of planes Uh, that uh, sank uh, seven battleships, caused some other damage. And at that point, Admiral Nagumo, the Japanese carrier commander, withdrew. Um, There's a line in my book which you'd see that Admiral Yamamoto, the chief uh, head of the entire Japanese Navy, looked at his chief of staff when the reports of the damage came in and said, Admiral Nagumo is going to withdraw. And the implication of that was that there was going to be much, a much more serious series of attacks after the first attack. And it might have even drawn into uh, a battle with the Enterprise, which was nearby, uh, with Admiral Halsley aboard, and the Lexington, which was about a day steaming away. Um, I say to myself, would Yamamoto have sent six carriers across 3,700 miles of ocean just to sink some obsolete battleships. 
Uh, I think that he probably wanted to do more. <laughs> what do you guys think? Personally, um, I, I don't think they uh, did, conducted a, a comprehensive attack. Because you know, sure they sunk some, you know, seven obsolete battleships, but they didn't hit. They didn't hit the submarine base. They didn't hit the oil farms or the or the oil fields, um, and like the repair, repair base and stuff like that. Stuff that was used to get the Pacific Fleet back in action a lot faster than it would have if they had conducted a second wave or a, sec- a second strike. So I think I think that's true. You look at it. We were just recently in Pearl Harbor. And I remember scratching my head going that the dry docks were left intact, the fuel was left intact. Everything needed to, to even take those seven obsolete battleships and re- replace or repair them uh, was left intact. It did seem like it was uh, not at all comprehensive. One man's opinion. <laughs> so uh, battle commanders all have personalities and it, it's interesting to speculate why Nagumo was so timid that uh, he would have pulled back early. So, do you think Roosevelt's War Council uh, and the, of cabinet members was informed of the naval strength of Japan? Did they, did they have a clear picture of Japan's navy? They did not. It's incredible, the lack of information that they had. Um, I quote several places, uh, including uh, uh, Ickes Diary, Harold Ickes, who was Secretary of the Interior, but actually was part of the War Council, and he stated that we will, uh, it will take us about six months to dispose of the Japanese Navy, and then we'll send our Navy, the British Navy, and the Dutch East Indian Navy around to the Atlantic uh, to confront Hitler. This is just an incredible lack of information and communication, and you wonder how this could possibly have occurred. a five-minute conversation with Admiral Harold Stark would have been completely disabused him of this notion, but th- there clearly was not that communication. The War Council would get together, they would discuss things, uh, they would bring in Stark and uh, General George Wash Marshall, uh, who would be posed questions, Marshall and Stark would give answers, and that was the end of it. Uh, it was just a drastic last lack of communication and led to the terrible errors that we've seen. You had mentioned sort of the cocktail club in the book and how the actual informers were not part of that, right? Well, Roosevelt liked to have a drink at the end of the day, uh, and so he'd bring his, his inside group in, which were uh, Stimson, uh, Star, um, Cordell Hull, Harold Inkies, sometimes Harry Hopkins. They'd sit around and be telling jokes and quips, and Roosevelt would wave his cigarette holder and say, that's great, I love it, I love it. And this was the the chat that went on. But the uh, General Marshall and Admiral Stark were not part of that. Uh, They were brought in for uh, formalized meetings who would answer questions when they were posed. Uh, but this, what, this is what went on, and it was, it was just too much of an inside group. It, the, the curious thing about Roosevelt is that he appointed his cabinet in 1933 when he took, first took office, 
and by and large, those people were there right up to 1945. Uh, and you wonder why, because uh, Cordell Hull had been for a long time a congressman from Tennessee. He had been senator from Tennessee. Uh, he had been instrumental in bringing in some of the southern states in the 1932 election. And after that, his reward was to be appointed Secretary of State. He was somewhat busy with, with uh, South America, like the Inter-American Council. He effectively knew nothing about the Far East and probably not much about Europe either. Uh, Roosevelt had every intention of being his own Secretary of State. So as far as he was concerned, it didn't matter very much. How would you praise uh, Admiral Yamamoto's strategy following Pearl Harbor? After Pearl, After Harbor. Pearl Harbor? Well, it's a curious thing. Uh, the carrier fleet withdrew, whether they planned to do more or whether they didn't plan to do more, uh, they withdrew. This left our carriers intact, and uh, they were ready to raid throughout uh, the, the Central Pacific because Yamamoto took his carriers, all six of them, back to Japan, and then went down uh, to truck to Rabaul. They, they invaded and took Rabaul. Then they went into the northwest part of Australia, and they went into the Indian Ocean, and they raided uh, Royal Navy bases around Ceylon, uh, sank a lot of ships, uh, in the Indian Ocean. Why did they do that? Perhaps it was to cut off supplies going into the Burma Road to support China. Uh, Yamamoto did not survive the war. We don't know why he did that. It seems to be uh, a bad decision because it allowed uh, Halsey and Wilson Brown uh, with their carriers to raid all through the Central Pacific and also to carry out the Doolittle raid against Tokyo. If Yamamoto would have left his carriers in the Pacific, uh, presumably all of that would have been prevented. So what was, uh, what was Admiral Nimitz's battle plan to meet the Japanese fleet? Uh, actually, I skipped a question here. I apologize. <laughs> um, why did uh, Admiral Halsey, why was Halsey not in command of the Pacific Fleet carriers at Midway? Admiral Halsey had been underway almost continuously since Pearl Harbor. This is six months. Uh, following Pearl Harbor, he was around the Hawaiian Islands. Then he went, I mean, the, the, the distances in the Pacific are enormous. The Pacific covers a third of the planet. Uh, he went south to, to Samoa to support uh, Marines coming into Samoa, 2,500 miles. Went back up to, uh, with, with the Yorktown under Fletcher to raid the Japanese uh, at, in the Marshall Islands. Back to Pearl Harbor, then all the way over to Marcus, which is uh, 800 miles from Japan to raid the Japanese islands there, back to Pearl Harbor to, get, to meet up with the Hornet uh, that was, had the Doolittle planes aboard. They got within about 600 miles of Japan. The Doolittle flyers took off all the way back to Pearl Harbor. 
And at that point, uh, the information, the, the, the intelligence that Nimitz had with his very astute uh, linguistic cryptology group in Pearl Harbor under Lieutenant Commander Roquefort, they had broken the Japanese code. They knew that the Japanese were going to try to invade Port Moresby around the 8th of, or the 10th of May. Uh, there'd be battles in the 7th and 8th of May. Uh, King, Admiral King in Washington, his intelligence group said, oh no, it's going to be much later than that, two weeks later. So King ordered Halsey to leave Pearl Harbor on the 1st of May to go all the way to the Coral Sea and take command of the carriers there. There would have been four carriers if he could have arrived in time. But he couldn't possibly arrive in time because he's, his restriction was the speed of his oilers that he had to refuel from. They could make about 300 miles a day. It was 3,500 miles to the Coral Sea. Divide it all out and what do you get? You get that he couldn't possibly be there before the 10th or 11th of, of May. So, nevertheless, orders were order. He goes all the way across the Pacific Ocean to the Coral Sea. He arrives after the battle is decided and comes all the way back, 3,500 miles. He arrives back, <coughs> having been underway almost continuously for six months. He's sick, he's got dermatitis, he's lost 20 pounds, and Nimitz takes one look at him and sends him straight to the Pearl Harbor Hospital. So he's at the Pearl Harbor Hospital, the most experienced, qualified carrier commander we had is watching our two task forces leave Pearl Harbor bound for Midway. He's watching out of the window of the Pearl Harbor Hospital. So um, what was Nimitz's plan to meet the, uh, to meet the Japanese fleet at Midway? We had broken the Japanese code. We knew they were coming. They were going to be coming from the northwest straight towards Midway on a course of 135, which was a southeast course. And they were be going to be coming uh, early in the morning on the 4th of June. They were to launch planes at 0430 in the morning, uh, about half of their planes, to attack Midway itself and to blow up the defenses on Midway. So half their planes would be gone. Uh, our plan, the Nimitz plan, was to have PBY float planes take off also at 0430 and in a fan shape search pattern, 22 PBYs would be looking for the Japanese uh, carrier fleet. They had done the same thing a day earlier and they found the amphibious fleet, so they knew that the attack was coming. It, they found the uh, Japanese carriers about 7.15 in the morning, and the plan was to have our carriers 140 miles away to the northeast. And so when the PBYs found 
the Japanese carriers, our planes on Midway would take off immediately. Uh, and this was all at about 0600 in the morning when this discovery would take place. They would launch their planes at 0600 and fly up the reverse of the Japanese course. The plan was for the carriers to launch their planes and fly on a perpendicular towards the interception point, which was calculated to be 140 miles from Midway. And the carriers were to be 140 miles from Midway. And there would be a concentration of force over the Japanese carriers. What happened was that for whatever reason, we don't really know why, but for whatever reason, the carriers were 60 or 70 miles away, which put them 200 miles away from the interception point which meant that they were beyond their operating range of 175 miles, and so they had to close the range. To close the range to, to 175 miles from 200 was 25 miles, which meant that a carrier at 25 knots would take an hour to cover that distance. That meant that the planes from Midway flew by themselves to meet the carriers Japanese carriers, which they did, and uh, most of them were shot down uh, there, because there was no support from the carriers. The carriers just weren't there. So, um, what did what did Admiral Spruance do to reverse that impending defeat? Well, Admiral Spruance is detached from the rest of the. He had two carriers. He was detached uh, in command of Enterprise and Hornet. So he had to calculate a new interception point. Uh, and instead, of, it had to be further to the south because the Japanese carriers would presume uh, to continue on their course. Uh, unfortunately, we had no backup reconnaissance because we thought that all the reconnaissance that was necessary would be uh, used to find the Japanese carriers at 0600. So Spruance was operating strictly on the basis of uh, dead reckoning, just the assumption that the Japanese would consider continue on the same course. So he launched his planes to intercept on a course of approximately 240. Some of them were on 231, but essentially they were moving towards the southwest. He had two air groups, one the Hornet Air Group, the other the Enter Enterprise Air Group, uh, and they were to search. They crossed the point where the they could expect to find the Japanese carriers, but there weren't any Japanese carriers there. Why? Because they had slowed their advance because of the uh, attacks from the Midway planes and also some torpedo planes that had uh, broken off earlier. Uh, and also, by that time, the Japanese scouts had found the U.S. carriers, and the Japanese uh, admiral changed course to the northeast to intercept and launch an attack on the U.S. carriers. By this time, it's about 0728 in the morning. The Hornet commander couldn't find the Japanese carriers, so he thought that perhaps they were further along and he, went, he was concerned that, about them getting closer to Midway, so he went to the southeast. 
uh, the Enterprise commander figured out that the Japanese carriers had probably been delayed, so he took a course to the northwest, reversed the course of the, that the Japanese would have been on, continued on that course for about 20 minutes until he was satisfied they couldn't possibly be there. He figured they, they couldn't be further south than where we are right now. They probably are north. He turned 32 planes, 32 dive bombers uh, to the northeast and started a search and just then saw a Japanese destroyer heading to the northeast. He figured just possibly that destroyer is trying to regroup with the carrier force. I'll follow them. And he did that. And in about five minutes later, all of a sudden, there, uh, coming out from under a cloud layer, were the Japanese carriers. It was a magnificent feat of battle judgment under difficult conditions. And I should also add, they were running out of fuel. And some of them never made it back. Well, following what I just described, uh, there were, uh, McCluskey, the air group commander of Enterprise, had two squadrons under his command. Uh, it, was a, it was difficult because one of the squadrons, because a crew member had trouble with his oxygen, dropped down 5,000 feet. So they couldn't use hand signals. He designated one carrier to the, to the uh, search squadron, scouting squadron, the other squadron to the, uh, the, of the of the bombing uh, squadron, which had 1,000-pound bombs, to the other carrier. Uh, and they carried out those attacks. Uh, the uh, the uh, Kaga, the Japanese carrier, was completely destroyed by the squadron that had been led by McCluskey, even though McCluskey's bomb missed. Others in the squadron hit. Uh, uh, Dick Best, the uh, bomber squadron, uh, had planes that knocked out the Akagi. Uh, second divisions of, of the uh, Best squadron had the latitude to uh, bomb whatever they thought was left. It turns out they also bombed the Akaga. It didn't really matter. Both squadrons uh, hit their uh, two carriers and the carriers were destroyed. At the same time, uh, the Yorktown, uh, which had been conducting their own uh, scouting, uh, had found the other two carriers, and uh, they had held back on Yorktown one of the squadrons so that there was just one dive bomber squadron left, and that knocked out uh, a third Japanese carrier so that uh, uh, the Japanese still had one carrier left untouched, even though there were torpedo attacks against it, but the Zeros shot down the tor torpedo planes that were trying to make that attack. Later in the day, I should say, the Enterprise squadrons got together uh, another attack, and uh, they sank the Hiryu uh, 
there was a bomber pilot on Enterprise, Dusty Kleiss, that I actually spoke with on the phone, who wrote his own biography or his own account of the battle. Uh, never call me a hero. Thanks to a dive bomber uh, veteran that I got to know that introduced me to Dusty Kleiss. Uh, those two veterans uh, described dive bomber tactics to me. Uh, Dusky, Dusty Kleiss dropped a bomb on Kaga. He also dropped a bomb on Hear You later in the afternoon, as did Dick Best. So the four carriers were destroyed. So I've heard it said that uh, the Japanese looked at Midway the way we looked at Pearl Harbor. Lots of mistakes made, but uh, but your book has been very fascinating in, in revealing a whole other sort of facet to what happened at Midway. I enjoyed that a lot. I'll tell uh, you, it was like, if you could imagine a, a plan that it's like a football game where the we have a busted play and you have, uh, you know, Kansas City with uh, Jack Mahomes 15 yards behind the uh, line of scrimmage dodging linebackers and he throws a Hail Mary into the end zone and they caught it. Yeah. That's about the uh, yep. what happened at Midway. Very good. All right, do you have any, any questions from our uh, from our panelists or from the audience? We'll open it up also. Kyle, could I get you to run a mic out here if anybody has a question? There's one. That's if I could have you ask that in the microphone there so we can hear it. Uh -oh. So the, the question is, why did Chiang Kai-shek have so much influence? How much what? So much influence. How, why, how, why did Chiang Kai-shek have so much influence over the negotiation? It's a very good question. You know, their, their motives, their, their position was not the same as ours. It had just seemed like Cordell Hull was so married to our so-called allies, which was the British, the Dutch, and the Chinese. He could not act independently. Both the British and the Chinese wanted us in the war. The, the British had been in the war for two years. Uh, when, when Churchill met with uh, Roosevelt in August of 1941, Churchill was desperate to get the United States in the war. We were not about to get into the war. We had, we had very strong isolationist groups that did not want us in the war because they saw what had happened in World War I, but we didn't really have to be in the war, but we did anyway and lost over 100,000 troops. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek would have been happy if we'd have had put troops into China and fought side by side with his army. We were not going to do that. But somehow, that influence that Cordell Hall felt from China prevented him from acting in the best interest of the United States. I should also add, adding on to that statement, if we'd have never gotten into that war with Japan, today, presumably, and it's hard to know exactly what could have happened, Japan would not have given up Taiwan. They would not have given up Korea. They would not have given up Manchuria. We would have two powers in the Far East today. Taiwan had been taken by Japan 
as a result of the Sino-Japanese War in 1895. They had Taiwan ever since then, all the way to the end of the war. Taiwan was never part of the Chinese regime that's in power today. And that's a point that people ought to think about. It was never, Taiwan was never part of uh, the Chinese government that exists today. Um, this isn't really a question, it's just an elaboration. Um, back to Midway, the destroyer that our aircraft ended up following that got them to the carriers. I've read that that destroyer was there because it was chasing a U.S. submarine. And if that submarine hadn't been there, the destroyer wouldn't have been there, therefore nobody to follow. It's just like you were saying, it's interesting how many dominoes had to fall into place to make all that happen. This is all part of the Hail Mary that went into the end zone. If it hadn't been for that destroyer, the whole thing would have been different. And the Japanese were all ready to launch a massive attack. Even with the one carrier that was knocked out by Yorktown, they had three carriers left, all ready to go. Dale, uh, back on Chiang Kai-shek for a moment. Uh, he was uh, obviously working very hard at every diplomatic angle all over the world at the same time, trying to gather support. Uh, he was fighting a civil war at the same time he was trying to repel the Japanese. Uh, things were very fluid, very complicated there. And uh, since he had the boots on the ground view, uh, he was in a fight for his life. So he was really highly motivated. Uh, uh, looking at alternative history here and what would have happened if we had not entered the war, uh, the, there were elements in Japan who would like very much to have had Asia, East Asia for East Asians. They wanted to expel foreigners and they wanted to have the Japanese be in control of Korea and China and Indochina as well. Uh, so there were things that went on there uh, that were really kind of getting under the skin of some of the American moderates even. Uh, we were unhappy about what had happened in Manchuria, Nanking, uh, Indochina. Do you think that if we had kept our hands off that the Japanese would have consolidated power and they gradually would have formed a liberal society there and they would have been benevolent uh, dictators controlling East Asia and, and everything would have been fine? Or do you think at some know. point we would have been forced to go in there and straighten things out some other way? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, you know, speculations are, are so difficult. I don't see them becoming very benevolent. They never were. Uh, it would the sort of thing you're suggesting I think would have taken a long time. We don't see it happening in China now. Uh, I think there would have been just an autocratic control that would have continued for a long time. Uh, what took the Japanese by surprise, of course, was the resistance of the uh, Chinese under Chiang Kai-shek. They originally thought that their uh, attack to China would be over in three months. Well, it wasn't over in three months. It was 
still going on after four years. They were bogged down and they were looking for a way out. And that was part of their negotiating position with us uh, in 1941. All right, any other questions? All right, Dale, thank you so much. This has been a, a great having you out here. Diplomats and Admirals is released December 1st, that is today, and uh, in bookstores, hopefully everywhere, and certainly in our bookstore down below. Um, thank you so much for coming out. If you have a copy of the book, Dale said he would sign them. I know I'm going to get mine signed. And uh, I just want to extend another uh, thank you to, the, to our guests, to our panelists, and to Dale personally for putting this together. And that concludes our, um, our little review of the book. So thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you.